0: Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives. With video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, I'm talking with Michelle Tesoro, ACE, about editing The Queen's Gambit. She edited the South by Southwest grand jury prize-winning feature film, Natural Selection, which earned her the 2011 South by Southwest Award for Best Editing. She also edited the feature film On the Basis of Sex, among others. Her editing of TV series includes Netflix's Emmy-nominated series, When They See Us, as well as episodes of Fringe, House of Cards, and Godless, among others. Tell me about reading the script and how those reading skills are important to an editor. Do you almost start editing the show when you're reading the script?
1: I do. (laughs) I try to feel the pace. I think Scott was giving us an us, meaning me, the DP, uh, Carlos Rafael Rivera, the composer, and our sound designer Wiley Stateman, like three episodes at a time uh, in his beginning drafts. And, you know, a lot of it is for function just to see if, okay, is there anything that I can spot that might not work or I should flag or ask him about ahead of time? You know, I just try to imagine it in my head. How does that go? Oh, okay, he's written in this a oneer. He's written in here a transition here he it seems like he's leaving the transitions open to me or here's one line that says oh a couple of pops of you know chess playing okay that means i'm going to have to put that together whatever that's going to be <laughs> you right. know but i mostly i think the first read on this for me was pace and how he wrote the chess matches and what the main point is we were to get across for each of these matches you know, because they all have some subtext that's more important than the actual game. That's what I was trying to lean in on and then ask him about, you know, what he was planning on doing. And he would tell me some of that, like, oh, I'm thinking maybe this, this match, I'm not going to show anything. I may just sh- shoot their faces. And that's where I think the story is. So, how do you, what do you think about that type of situation? So, so yeah, it was a lot of thinking ahead of it, talking with Scott about it. And then after it was shot, sort of saying, you know, he would either come back to me, oh, I didn't, you know, it didn't turn out the way I wanted it to fix it. Or, oh, I think, I think this is what the intention is. So you do what you do, you know, to it.
0: And the writer was the director, correct? Or one of the writers was the director. Does that change things? Have you worked with other writer directors? And and is your relationship with the director different because they also wrote the material?
1: To me, it's really much easier because they've already imagined it in their head when they're when they're writing. It's very, the intentions are very clear. It's one and the same. They're not like fighting with something if, if, say, if they don't agree with the vision. You know, it's not this different take on it. When it's been separate, I think it just depends on the influence the director has on the writer, on the script. Mold their vision with, with the script. And just make sure that the intentions are, are one and the same for, for all parties involved. But it's, it's nice when it's writer-director, because it just seems very... <laughs> and they know what you're going to deal with. You know, I mean, Scott and I, this is our uh, third project together. I think he knows what he can give me, and he knows um, how it's going to come together. So it's easier when he's writing, he's sort of already imagining those transitions and, and things like that. You know, there was a lot of flashbacks, a a whole flashback storyline in this, in the series, which wasn't in the book. So this was something that was new that he was sort of filling in in terms of giving a backstory to the character. And he said in the beginning, well, you know, I'm going to place these in the script and they may live there or they may not, you know, because we had experienced this on Godless where he wrote you know, some backstory, flashback stuff, and some of it we pulled out completely because it wasn't working. And then some of it we moved around. So he kind of knew that we could do that. And, you know, instead of discovering that, he just used that as a way. So when he shot these flashback sequences, he, he shot extra things that maybe we can use as flavor and just said, well, we shot this... This is this C number, but put it somewhere else, wherever you think, you know, this is maybe something we can play with.
0: Is there an advantage to working with someone multiple times so that when you're reading a script, that person trusts your sense of story and you feel like I can speak into the the script this time?
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, there's a sense of trust. You know, you know their writing. You know their sensibilities. Going both ways, it's it's easier to be able to feel free to to speak your mind, and especially if they keep reiterating, please tell me what you think. You know,
0: my issue sometimes with it is that sometimes, not always, they can be very. They wrote it, and the the words are very important to them, and and you can't talk them out of something that you might be able to talk them out of if somebody else wrote the words.
1: This is true. You know, he's pretty good. Scott himself is pretty good at okay, if something isn't working, but it's it's all he's always open to hearing, you know, why you why it didn't work for you. And then right. it's a discussion and then, you know, if he's right, then It's because we've discussed it and it's like, oh, right, you know, no, we need to make this point or this is the point that I'm trying to make. This is why this line is here, you know, but I have been in those situations where it's like, okay, your pass has to include all of the lines. You can't just arbitrarily lift things without a conversation, you know, really, Mm -hmm. or at least trying what they wrote.
0: I've had that discussion with multiple editors about the ability in an editor's cut to make a change. In the script and there are two rules there's two schools of thought you know never do it the editor's cut is for that specific purpose and other people that say no you you make the cut be the what you think it should be but that can cause problems or what has been your experience in trying to tweak the editor's cut to being something other than what the script is
1: i mean this is a really good topic to discuss because I found that it changes depending upon what the director's expectations are of that first assembly, you know, and what form they're looking at that first assembly. I mean, it it is good in just in terms of having it for record here, here is this scene as it was written, whether or not that ends up in an actual cut I think depends on the director because I've I've had the experience of, okay I'm going to do exactly what was shot in the script. I'm going to give you everything, even though I feel like this scene should be half the length it should be. But I'm going to give this my best shot because I don't want to overstep that bound, uh, that boundary if we haven't haven't talked about it already or I haven't been given explicit right to to do that and then i've done that and then they've been really disappointed saying oh well you just gave me the script (laughs) i know that's what i was
0: supposed to do (laughs) i'm like
1: oh so i mean but this what this comes to is really the communication between an editor and a director as you're shooting before you're shooting whenever that's going to be to be clear what, what the expectation is, what would you like me to do? And if it's something that hasn't been told to you as the editor, if you have this idea, being able to have that conversation and saying, Hey, you know, I, I I cut this the way that it is, but I sort of feel maybe you could lose this line or, or, or maybe we could approach it this way and then have that alt cut, you know, if you feel strongly, you know, I mean, I've been doing these versions of cuts where i i just start showing them if they're open to it if i can give it to them by the end of the week maybe at the end of every week i give them a couple you know a few sequences that have come together just so they can see how it's coming together out of context obviously Mm -hmm. it's not all in one but but it's a great way to kind of head those things off at the pass as well as buy you some time on the back end when you're trying to put it all together.
0: Yeah, I talked to William Goldenberg about cutting News of the World, and it was his second film with Paul Greengrass. He said, I don't want you to cut this the way the script is. So that's a great thing to have a conversation with your director ahead of time if you can. Talk to me about those flashbacks and your approach to them and how they were used in storytelling and when they didn't work and when they did work and how you felt you could get in and out of them.
1: You know, I'm a big fan of just, cutting them in and cutting them out, and it'll work if the emotion matches uh, on both sides of the cut. Uh, Mm. So Mm. I knew that the story was going to work without them completely. You could literally take these flashbacks out and you'd just be humming along, (laughs) you know? So, but, you know, there were times where, like, we needed information to understand who Beth was as a little girl, where she was coming from, there's a lot of times in the show where Beth is is by herself, you know. She's always alone. It seems like she's better alone because she can control her environment, she can control her internal whatever. And I think you know, we sort of try to use these moments as in and out points. You know, when do we kind of want to see the internal and what do we have of either the flashbacks with her mother, flashbacks of her father, which is was a little bit more expositional, you know, how can we inform what we're trying to portray emotionally in the present w- with something emotional that happened to her in the past? You know, so I think, you know, there was a lot of these flashbacks as I told you that weren't necessarily in the script, but ended up being shot. Like for example, very, very little Beth was looking through her mother's books of math or when they're um, crocheting or uh, the needle point, all the needle point. Like those little moments we just had to put in places where, you know, she's in her mania to match, to let us understand maybe where her tendencies come from, the addiction, and and also just give us background as to where where she comes from.
0: There's a lot of molding that happens, obviously. Some actors give a huge range and you're able to say, oh, I'm going to take this scene in this direction but I could also take it in this totally other direction. Uh, Was that the case with this show or was the through line of her emotion the same for each performance or very similar?
1: I think it was fairly the same. It was one thing that Scott really wanted to make clear about the character in terms of her performance or in terms of what kind of person she was. So I, you know, I would say it only varied when Anya was still sort of learning where where the pocket was. You know, and then once she knew where the pocket was, she was very consistent. Obviously, where she could go wild is when Beth herself goes wild. That was really actually great. So, um, because Anya brought other things to it, I think.
0: Have you worked with those kind of performances? Do you like one over the other where you're like I, I know where the actor is going to be and each take and each setup's gonna be fairly similar, or do you like it when you get the quiet performance and the crazy performance and the very unusual choices, perhaps?
1: Well, I would say it would depend on the scene, but it is fun when you get variations. Um, even if it's like slight variations of the same idea, because sometimes a performance can take you in what you know, the slight variation, in how they read this word or whatever can take you in one direction or another. And that direction, you have to be clear on the whole, what you're going for. So I do like it when you do have variations, especially you could do it when you have, you know, just these really great actors who were basically, they get it in, in two takes. or less so there's room for them to you know if they have other ideas and they want to experiment it's usually never super varied because at that point they've had discussions with the director and the writer about where they're supposed to be so it's always just these minor this way or that way you know that you can go it is fun when you can choose though I thought I had more of that when I was on a treatment actually There's more variations. So some of
0: the place where that comes out is in watching dailies and in trying to figure out where a scene's gonna go. Uh, I've heard of people that watch dailies backwards. They watch take eight first and seven, six, five, four. Other people like to see the progression. What's your method?
1: the way that i construct my dailies and i don't know whether it's because i like to procrastinate <laughs> but now that i've gotten the assistance to organize it in this way there's like now no reason for me to procrastinate but
0: <laughs> that's too bad
1: yeah <laughs> but no i usually organize all the dailies of a scene i break it up into i want to say phrases of a scene and you have every setup and every take in a row, like, say, line one to five,
0: you Mm -hmm. know, from
1: this character and then the response on that side from the other character, if there's two characters in the room, you know, I just kind of line up all the takes, all this, all the setups from the beginning to the end of end of the scene. uh, So I can see the whole thing at once in script order. And, you know, I call them my my pull sequence. I learned this from Ron Rosen and I know uh there's a couple of other people who who do similar things
0: i do yeah this is exactly my method you don't do a line cut but you do three or four lines five lines depending on sometimes it's based on the choreography or the the blocking where you're like okay i'm gonna do everything where they're over here and then they stand up and go over there that'll be a separate one yeah
1: yes i love this because it's like okay they, they did it this way. This is the coverage over here. Oh, there's no close up. Oh, okay. Most of the wide is over here. Oh, they did this long camera dolly choreograph thing here. It just tells me the pieces that that director, you know, thought they needed overall. Mm-hmm. Plus, what's great is I can see the variations of the performance and... To your, do I look at the last person? I mean, if I have time, I'll watch from beginning to end. You know, from, from the first take to the last take. But usually they'll mark, like what the selects are. And I'll look at the notes depending upon the relationship with the script supervisor. And on the Queen's Gambit, we had Sharon Enriquez, who's excellent. And, you know, she communicates a lot of what Scott thinks in terms of what takes were working for them and not so it's like i always look at that first what did they think on set and then i'll watch it and i'll usually watch just through the director selects you know if you've got five takes and he selected three i'll do those in order if i'm in a real rush maybe i'll look at the (laughs) at the end but Mm -hmm. and that's usually not too much to watch is just watching the selects it's you know because we'll also cut in the things that weren't printed just for safety in case you know whatever we put in the cut that wasn't great what else is there let's see everything that's there at least it's organized i find that this is great because i i watch the whole thing and i see what all the setups are and already in my mind i can sort of know the blocks to play with and be able to cut it that way Knowing, okay, well, they ended up here and this performance over here was really awesome in this setup. How can I build to that? So it sort of gives me an overview before I actually go in there and start putting things together.
0: And so you're working off of a a selects reel or a pull reel. What do you do from that point? Do you start making notes? Do you start editing a scene together? Do you start making tighter selects?
1: I'll pull from a selects reel and I'll make like add edits you know, within that reel and I'll copy that and start, I kind of do it by subtraction. So I'll start pulling stuff out that wasn't selected. And then with that, you know, I'll usually end up with a third of what the original pull sequence was. And then I'll just start cutting from there. Kind of big ideas of, okay, here, here, and then I'll kind of go back over it once it's sort of rough. You know, may not be smooth cuts, but because I know that gets me, sometimes I'll get like stuck with like making a cut too fine without finishing the whole thing. But I will eventually go back and start, you know, fine toothing it. But yeah, it's more of a subtraction and then get to cutting.
0: When you are cutting, are you using that fine select reel as a source or are you building the edit from that fine selects reel?
1: So if I need to pick a different take because whatever I picked maybe wasn't working for me, I'll go back to the pull sequence. And so I'll know, okay, well, I still have my locator on that and my note about it. I'll be making a marker and I'll put a note right there in the marker or the locator. I don't know, they've changed what they call it.
0: We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Michelle Tesoro. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with a director, cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make timestamped notes. No more uploading or downloading of files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of February, art of the cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us/aotc. That's evercast.us/aotc. And now back to my conversation with Michelle Tesoro. Let's talk about the the process after the first assembly. Talk to me about how those stories changed when you got in with a director and also how they changed when you finally were able to see context.
1: Well, that is my favorite part of the process because <laughs> you actually get to see what you've done. Boy, we then realized, I, I specifically remember, of course, the number one thing I want to know is how long the thing is. And in our case, <laughs> because we shot everything cross-boarded, so it was basically all six episodes, all the scenes were basically assembled together into reels, and we could do our run times. And I think we ended up at like maybe nine hours and 50 minutes or or something like that it was the first assembly. In watching it, it was really enlightening, especially in the first episode, to see how much chess there was and how much we didn't want the amount of chess (laughs) that was in that episode, as well as these flashbacks. It was very clear, like, because I had just put them where they thought while they were shooting they they could go, and we sort of, you know, just kind of put them there knowing we were going to move them. But, you know, they clearly weren't working all the time. There was a point you know, when I told you earlier, where I I moved a flashback early on. I think it was the flashback of the father to give Alice her pills and wants to take little Beth. You know, we thought that at first, you know, that scene was too much, too soon. It was too long. I don't know if I probably said that (laughs) and I moved it. And, you know, we struggled with these flashbacks. And then eventually, you know, Scott was like, let's what was in the script again? And we looked back, and he was like, you know what? I really think we need to put it there. Now, this was after really trimming down a lot of other things around it. So now when we put it back, it then felt right. What was interesting is because I was feeding Scott uh, the sequences as he was shooting, he was already sort of familiar with what the assembly was going to look like. You know, I think I got to basically a rough assembly a week after they stopped shooting is when i knew we had cut everything and it was all in order sometimes what we've done in the past is we've just hit it reel by reel so i i would break these episodes up into 20 minute reels and the reason why we do that is because we bring on sound and a, a sound designer and a music editor and obviously the composer has already been writing like up to a year prior to that What we like doing is getting through like a 20 minute sequence and giving it to them and they do their pass. So really, I don't really get an editor's cut in per se where it's like I'm putting a whole episode together and giving it to him, you know, with music and sound. It's where we're working together towards what what we would call a director's assembly. You know, so usually that would for us that got us to March 6th, being able to watch. Did we watch the whole uh, no, we watched the first three episodes on Mar- March 6th because our executive, our, our, our producer, Bill Horberg, was too antsy, didn't want to wait for the whole thing to be done. So <laughs> he's like, Can we, can't we at least watch the first three? So we did that. But on Godless, we, we waited till we watched the whole thing. We had like a binge with all of our internal people. So it's just, it was all of Post, sound editors, assistant editors, composer, music editor, producer. And we watch, we just binge the whole freaking thing, which is fun because, you know, and then at that point, you know, Scott is making edits and lines and we're doing a little bit more finer cutting. We're tracking with the music as much as we can. It's not all the music, but it's as much as they're able to write. And obviously what's great about it is you can hear during that watchdown is clean dialogue. So you really understand the rhythms You know, it's got some, obviously, the heart heart effects, but also, you know, any kind of design that we might need in in some of those special sequences that might have needed it. You know, it's not, you're coming at it going, well, once we get music in here, it'll be good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting talking about these long rundowns. You're cutting it almost as if it's a 10-hour movie or an eight hour movie. Is there a challenge to storytelling on that scale or is there a freedom to it? Talk to me about the difference between that and a regular TV show.
1: Well, it's, it's very different. I mean, I think the advantages of doing it that way is you get a very, uh, how do you say? The point of view is very, uh, it's a singular voice. It feels singular. And you get a lot of consistency in style as well as, you know, it, it feels like it can be watched that way because that's how we're attacking it. You know, you can binge it and binge it because we're, it's meant to go, to go next to each other, you know, because we're saying, okay, I've watched it this way, and I think the transition between here and here, if somebody wants to take a break, maybe they can, but, you know, it'd be good if they can make it through the end of three because that's a good break if you can get it to the first three and then the back four. I mean, it's a lot of work, you know, logistically, but it kind of doesn't feel that way when you have only one director anyway, who just wants to focus on one thing and doesn't really want to go, okay, I'm going to work with you on episode one, and then I'm going to jump over here and work on episode three or whatever. Like he, he didn't want to do that, which is why we decided to do it this way, which, you know, in terms of the process, we did this on Godless as well. So we sort of honed this. I think storytelling wise, it sort of keeps it very consistent. And I think at some point in the process when we've all done a really good pass through all the episodes, we are consistently watching it and sending out it out to people that way. And they're watching it as a whole series. You know, you're just thinking about it more like every episode is a reel. It's not episodic the way he wrote it. Once you have multiple directors, you have to have multiple editors. It's difficult for them to wait because they also always want to do their pass. And having those other directors immediately injects a different style of storytelling. You know, they do a different kind of shot. I think I had that experience on Luck where we had directors that had their own style that were quite established, and they were putting, you know, this episode, you know, episode four looked much different from episode one, which looked different from episode nine, you know, but they were in the same world. I'm not in favor of one or the other. I think I probably like it better when I'm doing a whole thing cuz it feels like you're you're you have ownership over the whole idea of it and you can really invest yourself in the series as a whole instead of, you know, I'm just going to care about my episodes.
0: When you work on uh, a normal TV series, let's call it, do you find that you need to be the steward of that show when you're working with all these different directors who might have different styles?
1: I think most shows, that is a goal of theirs. And usually you have, you know, the overall showrunner trying to add that. So when they're doing their pass, if the showrunner isn't also one of the directors, if it may just be the writer, the person, the lead writer, they usually, whatever their pass is makes that overall flavor the same flavor. You know, even if each episode might be different, if you know what I mean. I mean, as an editor, I I think because there's other editors involved, depending upon who they are and if they're the kind of people that, you know, we share ideas and we could affect one another, but usually that is done by whoever is leading the pack. If you're doing the first episode, you're sort of setting that tone anyway. So you have a little bit more of a say in terms of, okay, this is cut this way and that's what people like and what people have said, this is the show. And then that trickles down. So if you're an editor in the third position, it's already kind of laid out for you.
0: You mentioned that there's a subtext to a lot of the chess matches. Can you describe how those subtext affected how you were editing those matches?
1: So let's talk about her first uh her first tournament. This is episode 2 we're at Kentucky, the first time that she sits down to play and it's the only other girl in in the tournament. You know, we're very much learning about what her prescribed place is going to be in the world of chess. So it's very much okay, this is the clock. We're in- introducing the clock. We're introducing the um, what the timings mean, what the writing down, and obviously this is all in, in in the writing as well, you know, she asks these questions. So it's sort of like trying to walk you through it. And throughout the next sequences of her playing, you kind of have these different characters of chess people that she, she interacts with, because this is the first time that, you know, she's seeing the kind of, the kind of players and what their shtick is. So everybody had kind of a shtick, you know, like... (laughs) So it was really about showing the characters that are there. And then, of course, the final character is Harry Beltic, you know, who, you know, we build throughout the episode as being, you know, a threat. And in the first part of that, you know, before she takes her bathroom break, it's very standard. You know, we want to show, okay, this is the last game. She's made it this far can she stand up to it? And other than this establishing shot in the beginning where, you know, they're playing, it's the 50, 50, that kind of booms up a little bit, which is great because within that they're playing at a rhythm and you can see that he's very at ease. Obviously he's shown up late, you know, (laughs) so we show the clock, we show the time she's very frustrated and, you know, he's basically sharking her at some point. After we do the boom-up of establishing, okay, she's kind of already psyched herself out, we want to go a little bit more internal with her sort of being psyched out by him. You know, at that point, we're not that interested in what's actually happening on the board. We're interested in her emotional state and how what he does affects her. So the thing with the yawning... Oh, he's got this weird yellow teeth. And on the top of all of it, it seems like he's completely unfazed <laughs> by any move that she makes. And it surprises her because from the other matches that she's had, she hasn't had this problem. She's she's felt completely confident. She's felt like she's ahead of everybody. And this guy, for whatever reason, it is really getting to her. So finally, you know, because I had to build her to feel like she needed, she was about to break down and that she needed to take this bathroom break and how do I make a turnaround here? So I think if you look at the coverage, we're getting a little tighter and tighter, there's a time cut in there where we're on these really close shots, which I can't remember if he had any wide, I don't think he had wider shots there. I think he didn't give me the option, he just had this. So, <laughs> oh, we did have wider coverage, but I ended up using these tighters because I wanted to get in her head more and to lead her up to the, I'm going to go to the bathroom and take my pill, Mm -hmm. uh, which she does. And when she comes back, obviously in Anna's performance, she's completely changed. And I think in this sense, like, I wanted to keep this intense because this is the intense, like emotion confrontational back and forth between her and Harry. And you want to see Harry's reaction to this, like, okay, this is different and now we're in a different part of the game even though i have no idea on the on the board no one has no idea what on the board it, it's right because the chess consultants have made sure that <laughs> <laughs> that it all is in continuity but at that point i think you know when we know that you know we want to have this as a turnaround and she's going to start winning i start cutting in closer to the board to see these actual matches And there were times where just by me watching um, what they did, I can kind of tell what was an important move, especially when Harry goes, you know, they have a reaction to it. So I was like, okay, so that's important. (laughs) But I would, you know, I would kind of go tighter and tighter. I I use the sizing of everybody to make it, you know, intensify it, say, point out what's important and use it that way. And then. In that sense, you know, we then stayed here and after at some point before he puts his king down, you know, it's just a dialogue between between her and Harry. And you kind of you already know that she's that she's won without really seeing it play out. But really, that's kind of how we attacked most of the matches. And sometimes Scott already knew that he didn't care about what was on the board. You know, for example, the Girev, the young boy in Mexico City that she plays, there's an adjournment, she comes back. And the second part of the match, you know, you don't see the board at all. It's just her getting up, making a move, getting up and psyching this this young kid out. His performance was so great. like. You could just tell like that where she stood in it and it didn't matter, you know, what was going on on the board. And that, I mean, Scott just already decided, okay, we're only going to show it when he lays his king down. What
0: kind of visualization were you able to do or did you do for the envisioning the chess match like going on above her head or any of that kind of stuff?
1: This was an element in the book that was already kind of drawn out, not explicitly, but it was something that, you know, we would send the plates you know the scenes is cut with the empty ceiling and everything to chicken bone which is our visual effects and they went round after round with the way these things were going to look i think you know scott would say well you know it should look like not ghostly but not you know i think he his first style idea was well you know watch the ring you know when the the creature comes out. We wanted it like that. But so they would do that. And he'd be like, oh, you know, I don't know. It looks too like digital, you know. And so it was just mm-hmm. sort of like he had to, they had to try things and he just had to react to it. And it went weeks, like literally they would have these sequences for months and we would go back and forth until it just felt right, basically. Mm-hmm. But the play, you know, again, those those were things that the chess consultants well, actually, no, it wasn't the chess consultants. It was our post supervisor. <laughs> she would read up on what might be appropriate given where it was in the story. And, you know, because some of these openings or certain games have characters to them. Like, And I think she would be in contact with Bruce Pandolfini and our other chess consultants about, well, what would you think would work? and And they would choose what they would do. And so... Um, before they came up with the style you know like the kind of it wasn't ghostly feeling it's hard to describe what they are but what they ended up being they would just be white and black like uh, I don't know what you call it when it's just an animatic because we Mm -hmm. just need to know what the motion is and is this queen going to come this way or you know in front of camera or whatever the the animation was and I would cut with that you know until they could figure out what what the style was, (laughs) but finding the style like took forever.
0: And last thing, what, what was the schedule? You've talked about a few things with like, oh, we did this in March and this went on for months. When, how long was the shoot? And then how long were you on the edit? after the shoot?
1: So, I think it was a fairly long prep, and then um, they started shooting at the end of August, and they shot for 82 days. August of 2019? 2019. And they shot for 82 days, so they were out of there maybe mid-December. We didn't start really locking episodes. Like, final lock was in June, mid-June sometime, and then uh, we mixed in all of July, you no, know, now we're mixing as we were going, so it was just finalizing. We, I think we we got done with mixes within a matter of three weeks for all of the episodes, and then after that, I, I mean, I was going home at the end of July, and I, they were finishing delivering in September.
0: Wow, that's a fast turnaround for that many hours of material.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would think it's it was pretty good. Although when they were getting the episodes in terms of Netflix, I think we were giving them the first three when we started working remotely. I remember moving, going, "Well, Mick, my post producer, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to let me work the sixth and seventh day because you know the move made me lose out on a day <laughs> of cutting, mm-hmm. and I had to deliver to Netflix. I remember that. Yeah, so the, I mean they got it a little bit later than what maybe you would have normally seen the first episode if it was like an episodic. Structure.
0: Michelle, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It was, you were very enlightening and uh, had some great things to say. I really appreciate it. Give RGB, uh, uh, Ruth Bate, RBG. I think everybody does that. RGB, if you're in the TV business, RBG, a little pat on the head for me.
1: Thank you so much. It was an honor, pleasure. All right.
0: That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Michelle Tesoro, ACE. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovannetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a film making or film loving friend.